Welcome to season one of the Sober Motivation Podcast. Join me, Brad, each week as my guests and I share incredible and powerful sobriety stories. We are here to show sobriety as possible, one story at a time. Let's go. On the outside, it may have appeared that Michelle had things together. On the inside, she was harboring a secret that almost cost her her life, an addiction to alcohol. In today's episode, Michelle shares her story of getting sober, overcoming a relapse, and creating a community of support. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity, has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and sends results directly to your specified contacts, so there's no questioning whether or not you took the test or whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting Soberlink.com recover. Welcome back to episode four of the Sober Motivation Podcast. Today we have my incredible friend Michelle from Sober in Los Angeles. Michelle, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Brad. How are you? I'm well. I'm well, and I'm really grateful to have you on the podcast here. Maybe we'll start things off with a little bit of your childhood. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm Michelle. I'm sober in Los Angeles on Instagram. I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm born and raised here. Really had a wonderful upbringing. I have a younger brother who's actually in recovery as well. By all standards, had a really solid upbringing. We played, you know, I played sports, was the senior class president in high school, had a ton of friends. And, you know, I definitely um, dealt with some depression and anxiety throughout high school. I think back when I was in high school, it was really less diagnosed or less sort of looked at as a problem and not talked about as much. And so I think that that's sort of where some of my mental health struggles set in during the high school period, but also where some of my drinking started too. But I also, you know, I went off to school in Philadelphia. I went to a great college, spent some time in Detroit working in sports when I, and then came back to LA and, did my master's degree in LA and have basically been here ever since. So that's, that's, you know, a little bit about my upbringing. Yeah. Beautiful. I can relate to you 110% with the, with the high school stuff. I feel like that's when things for me really became a challenge was, was during high school that trying to fit in, trying to belong somewhere. And I definitely felt like an outsider for most of my high school days and, probably yeah. before then, but it was really exposed during high school. When did drinking become part of your life, like high school? Yeah, very, very casually. It's so interesting because I know that so many people have pressure from their parents to really succeed in high school. And my parents always let me do exactly whatever I wanted. So I wanted to take the tough classes. I wanted to 
be in extracurriculars, um, be part of our student body government. And so I really put a lot of pressure on myself. But part of that was that I, you know, even despite having at the time, undiagnosed depression, I wanted to have some sort of uh, school life balance and started drinking casually at parties in high school. And I wouldn't say it was problematic at that point, but I certainly indulged uh, quite a bit. So that's definitely when drinking came into my life. And I do think it was to sort of relieve myself of my of the pressure I put on myself in high school. Yeah, that definitely seems to be where a lot of people start out with high school and the pressure of everything. It's really like, it's kind of before life starts, but it's a heavy, yeah. it's definitely a heavy part of life. I, I hear a lot and I can relate like with my own story, like the first time I got drunk, I didn't necessarily know that this was going to be a problem. Like I wasn't there yet, but I enjoyed it way too much. Can you relate to that the, the first time? Like, I don't remember many other times after that, but that one time I could tell you who was there, where it was. We were drinking some, it was like Everclear in a cooler with fruit. And I remember that and I'm like, I just felt alive. Can you relate to that at all? Absolutely. I. It's so funny because I cannot, I remember the first time I, smoked weed like vividly and weed's never been a problem but I cannot remember the first time I drank actually got drunk somehow I just started drinking in high school on weekends and after homecoming and things like that but I certainly had this like desire I was always so excited when we would have homecoming and I knew that a friend's brother was going to get us some Smirnoff ice or some vodka or something. I always got so excited for that part of the night. Like we're going to have so much fun. We're going to get drunk. We're going to be silly and that alive feeling for sure. Although I'm not really sure I was actually alive. It just, you know, at that young age, it felt like so rebellious, but I certainly had that feeling and definitely can relate. Interesting stuff for sure. How we can kind of remember those details, but was it in college when things started to escalate for you? Yeah, absolutely. In college. So I went, I went to uh, the university of Pennsylvania, which is a wonderful school, but also pretty well known to have a big party scene. It's a fast crowd for sure. And when I got to college, it was all about party. I mean, I, w I won't say all about partying, definitely studied very hard. Freshman year, I had actually made a bunch of friends who are from Los Angeles. So oddly enough, I go all the way to Philadelphia for college and end up meeting <laughs> all these amazing people from LA and we kind of all stuck together. I think when I noticed it was most problematic was my first semester freshman year. We had obviously been partying a lot, trying to soak in all of that freedom of sort of living of living on our own for the first time, just living away from my parents. My freshman year, I got a phone call that a really close friend, someone I had dated in high school had committed suicide. And I, I honestly hadn't, I felt like I had nowhere to turn. You know, as I mentioned before, it, it seemed to me in high school, I didn't really have the resources to cope with 
depression and anxiety like I do now. When I got that phone call, I remember just not feeling like I had anywhere to turn. And I, I'm sure that there were mental health resources on campus. I just wasn't aware of them. And so instead of really dealing with that grief and that trauma, really understanding what had just happened, it was like I was a zombie. I was going to classes, hysterically crying, laying in my dorm room, listening to the same songs on repeat. And then at night, going out and drinking and ending up a blubbery mess by the end of the night, just either being blacked out or sobbing somewhere. I think that's when, you know, not dealing with that, that trauma and that death in my life was really when things started to escalate and I started to use alcohol to cope. It became more than just partying. It was a tool that I used to cope with things that came up in my life. Yeah, that that's a common story too that I that I hear a lot too is that it, that's when it kind of switches over. Is yeah. like it's the it's the party, it's to to fit in, to have a good time. A lot of people do that and then there's sort of something that happens and then now we switch over to something that the thing with alcohol is that we can always depend on it. You can go to the mm-hmm. store and 10 20 bucks and more than not know the result you're going to get in it. And it works really well until it doesn't work. So college, this happened and you're struggling big time with this. Did you ever think to reach out for help? Like, was there ever anything you did during your college years to you know, say, I need some help with this? No, you know, there were a couple, there was one instance in particular, like my sophomore year, or may, I believe it was my sophomore year. And I had thought about transferring back to a school in California to be closer to my family. I definitely like that time in particular, I was just feeling so down. I ended up applying too late to transfer. And so they said no. And so that was sort of when I look in hindsight, that's the only time where I was like trying to figure out if I could do something to change. But in terms of actually reaching out for help, I I really didn't. I mean, I lived with eight other women my sophomore through senior year in a house off campus. And we all really supported each other, but we were all really young. I mean, we were young and doing the same things like going out and partying. But in terms of, you know, what I do now, I never really reached out to anyone in terms of actually getting the support I needed. I never did. Yeah. I think that's the thing that, you know, we get, we get stuck in sort of this, this cycle of things, right? Did your family know what was going on? No, they knew that I, I certainly had ups and downs, but they were so far away. And I think that they noticed a little here and there, like when I would come home for breaks, that maybe I'd come home like a little drunk from, um, you know, seeing my co- my high school friends when I was home from college, but they had absolutely no idea. It was, and that sort of became a pattern for me when we talk about in my late 20s, early 30s, when I, it was time for me to get sober, my parents really had no idea how bad it had gotten. And at, at certain points thought I wasn't drinking and didn't know that I was drinking again. So I became very good at hiding it from them. I think my 
my friends were always the ones that knew, obviously, because they could see me partying. They saw sort of the fallout from certain things that had happened. We do a really good job at like hiding it. We don't want to point it out to people. We don't want people mentioning that this is a problem because then maybe just maybe we'll have to maybe do something about it. And we don't want we don't necessarily want to at that at that point. What about in your what about after like college? Now you're out into the real world. The quote unquote real world of my twenties. <laughs> yeah, no. So I mean, I I mentioned to you, I I went to Detroit. I worked in sports, and it was very much, you know, working in sports is very much um, a big. There's a big drinking culture, um, especially because we're working so many hours um, for you know working games and so working game nights, working all day, doing events outside of the the games and such and so we'd always go to the bar after and I think it became somewhat normalized because it was like everyone was drinking in college everyone was drinking when I was in Detroit partying a lot when I came back to LA in grad school we were doing projects you know doing our grad school projects at the bar and so yeah it just sort of continued on through my 20s and I think that I was maybe you know I was still doing really well in grad school and sort of setting up a career for myself um, or, you know still doing just fine at work and in school but you know the weekends and the weekend when I say weekends it was probably more like Thursday through Saturday sometimes Wednesday through Saturday I was just finding myself partying those nights and it certainly got to a much more scary point in my late 20s when I started to mix in Xanax with drinking. And so that's like when it got really bad. I will point out I have had chronic migraines and headaches for as long as I can remember. And I dealt, you know, in as my 20s went on, I dealt with that sort of in this horrible cycle of, you know, having headaches, thinking that I could get some relief by drinking a little bit. And then the next day would be terrible with hangovers. So my headaches would just be worse. And I had a doctor prescribe me Xanax, not knowing how much I drank, which obviously is very dangerous. Um, Me not at the time, not knowing how dangerous it was to mix Xanax with drinking. And that's when I started this sort of cycle Um, partying on the weekends and blacking out pretty early on, that's when it became really dangerous. And so, yeah, there seemed to be a problem there, but it went from problematic to, to scary and dangerous when the Xanax came into play. How old were you when you started taking the Xanax and were you still in school at the time? No, I was probably 28, 29, 30. Okay, got you. You're definitely right about that. A dangerous combination that I I only did it a few times. I didn't have a prescription or anything, but I did it a few times. Yeah. And I blacked out. I was, I was talking with somebody else too about like, I went to, uh, I showed up to work one day and I had taken some Xanax and some alcohol and then I blacked out and like this job, they like sent me home and supposedly I drove home. It was really scary thing. And when they sat me down and talked about it the next day, I didn't remember anything. What a mess that was. So I yeah. can, and that was like one time and then it happened another time 
I wouldn't say like it happened. It wasn't like something that just happened to me. It's a choice. I made. It was a choice I made. And then, then that happened because of it. But I couldn't, oh, I can imagine that that would be scary because I didn't think that that was a thing. Like, I didn't think I was going to black out from having like a couple of beers and some Xanax. And then the next thing right. I know, I'm out with my buddies and I don't remember anything. And the next day they're telling me like, you were completely out of line, out of control. And we've never seen that before. And I'm just like, wow. Okay. I mean, it didn't scare me enough to, for me to get sober at the time. So I couldn't imagine that for like years. Yeah, it was probably, it's totally scary. And I totally relate to those stories that you told. I mean, I would, I had a friend tell me, I did come to the point of realizing, you know, when I had, was first prescribed it, I didn't think that there was any problem, but I obviously started to recognize that it was making, you know, it was causing problems and I didn't realize how dangerous it was, but I got stuck in this cycle of using Xanax to cope with when there's a ton of other ways to cope with headaches, one of them being not drinking, but it became this cycle. And I had a friend tell me one time, you're so much fun until like midnight and then something switches and you're just like a zombie. You know, there were moments that were really, really scary. So yeah, it definitely got to the point where I was scared enough. I had hurt enough people, hurt myself enough that I was like something has to change. What surprises me most about all of this, though, is that you're able to go to school, finish school, graduate, hold these jobs. When I was doing when I was doing this stuff, I couldn't hold the job at Little Caesars. I got fired from Little Caesars. The owner threw a pizza, a whole pizza pan at me one time and was like, uh, you, you know, you're fired. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, so that like that always amazes me how some people keep it all together and then I was like, man, you know, was I just like a one off kind of guy? I couldn't keep anything together. I got I got a, kicked out of college. And I mean, the list goes on. At the end, I was living on my brother's couch and I'm like, man, I, you know, looking back, I wish I could have had some success. How did you manage all of that? I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> I look back and I'm like, how was I partying so much and keeping it all together? Um, and I would say I sort of was, and I sort of wasn't, I really only drank when I was partying. I never drank in the mornings or during the days when the part, when parties came around, I was full fledged partying and I sort of found ways around it. Like I always made it to school. Sometimes I would call in sick to work if I was hungover on like a Friday morning or something. It amazes me too that I was able to somehow keep it all together because I remember one time in particular, I had gone out and then I woke up the next morning and I was just, I couldn't move. And I ended up not showing up to this work event. And in my mind, you know, in my mind, it just wasn't important enough and it was going to be okay. And I definitely got in trouble for not going, but sort of always talked my way out of it. Like, I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. I just, I really wasn't feeling well. And I had texted so-and-so that I wasn't going to be able to make it. So it was almost like I was always 
planning ahead that I was going to cancel on things. I knew I was going out and partying. I had a plan for the morning on how to cancel and somehow just continued, you know, continued to do good work. And I, I have to tell you, looking back, I, I don't know how I did it. I really don't because there were days where I would just, you know, lay in bed all day and pretend I was working from home or something like that. And I I wasn't. So it's pretty, I know that there are just, it's such a spectrum. When we look at people, I am in a no off switch drinker. And so I somehow managed to not drink during the days. And then, but when I did drink, it was, you know, all bets are off, no off switch. So it is pretty astounding to me when I look back to that, I was able to, on the surface, on paper, keep things together. Yeah, that's a good point, too, that you made at the end there, because that's been brought up in in a few conversations, too, about on the outside, it might look like we have things somewhat together. But I Mm -hmm. think what the big thing that motivated me anyway to make changes was how I felt on the inside. There was never really, I mean, there was, but there wasn't like rock bottoms that I was like, oh, because of this rock bottom, I'm going to change. It was more like the internal rock bottom of like, long story short, I feel terrible every single day. And I sort of would catch glimpses of two years down the road, five years down the road, 10 years down the road. And I'm like, I would see it in other people. I'm headed in that direction pretty fast. And, and with with drugs too, drugs was a big part of my my story. Kind of asked myself, like, what do I want out of life? Because this this is going to be a blur for the next 40 years. When did you first get sober? What you said about that internal feeling, like I, I certainly had those moments where I was so embarrassed and I had done something terrible or I had blacked out at a friend's wedding and really hurt hurt her or something. It was that internal feeling of I'm pushing people away. I'm hiding this from my family. I just don't feel like I am my best self or that I'm happy. And so I first got sober in 2017. I was in September of 2017. I had just hit that point where I wanted to feel better. I wanted to repair relationships I had so many people that loved me and cared about me, you know, my friends who were seeing this, that they knew I was a good person, but I was not a good person when I was drinking. So I got sober 30 going on 31 um, in 2017 and stayed sober basically on my own. I really like white knuckled it. I stopped drinking, but I didn't really do any recovery work. And so I stayed sober for a couple of years and started drinking again, like right before the pandemic. You know, I convinced myself I could moderate that I had, I wasn't using Xanax anymore. And so I wasn't partying anymore. I can go on dates and have a drink. And that's when the floodgates opened back up. So, you know, those, those two years, I think were really important to show me that I could live without alcohol, but I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't doing 
work on myself or finding the support I needed to really feel like I could flourish without drinking. And I think that it just got stale and I wanted to let alcohol back into my life. And I'll spoiler alert, that did not go so well. You want to give it one last try. And I don't I don't ever suggest that to anybody. Of course, people are going to have their own journey. But I do find that when people share about it, it's like you close the door, you quit drinking. So you close the door, but you left it unlocked. So you figured out moderation wasn't going to work. What role did this relapse play in your eventual sobriety? It played. So I I would first say if I had to go through relapse all over again, there were a couple of hospital visits in that time um, before I got sober again in 2021. I was hiding it. It was weighing on me really heavily. So it was horrible. I don't recommend relapse to anybody. But for me, again, looking back, that period showed me that it was no, it wasn't just the Xanax and the that cycle I had gotten into. Um, but I mean, it got really bad during the pandemic, especially since I was uh, living on my own and able to hide it so easily and get alcohol from all these different delivery services that they have nowadays. It was so easy. Looking back and where I am now, it was so necessary because it showed me that in those two years where I wasn't drinking, I wasn't doing any recovery work. And I wasn't, I had zero sober friends. I knew, I mean, I know a couple of family members who are sober, but I had zero sober community, zero sober support, you know, call me a dry drunk if you want during that time, that's fine. Um, But I, it completely changed when I got sober again in 2021, November, November of 2021. I knew things had to be different this time around. I never would have gotten to the point I am right now and changed if I hadn't ended up in the hospital. You know, thank goodness. I I thank my lucky stars every day that my recovery date isn't um, didn't go the other way, right? But I would not be where I am right now had I not gone through all of that. Like, What do you take away from that relapse? And I'm thinking two things here. A big part of your story from what I've heard is like you're partying, you're out social drinking, partying. But the pandemic hits here anyway, where I was at, there was no partying. So how, no. what changed and what was the alcohol doing for you? Nothing. <laughs> comforting me. (laughs) So when the pandemic hit, you were spending all of your time at home drinking? Oh, yeah, it was like a couple bottles of wine. Not all the time. It got progressively worse um, throughout the pandemic. And there would be months where I would not drink at all because I knew like I was working from home. Obviously, I actually worked from home before the pandemic. So I think the biggest thing that changed for me was I had gone to yoga every single, like almost every single day when I was working from home before the pandemic and sort of had this community. And then going from that to then just being home by myself all the time with my one dog at the time, I have two now. 
Um, but my one dog, I just, I felt totally alone. And like I said, it just, I mean, it got out of control at certain points when things started to open back up in 2021. I was keeping this secret from a lot of people that thought I was still sober. So I was just sort of keeping it from people that, hey, I'm drinking at home alone and it's not good. But when things started to open back up again, I got very drunk. Um, I passed out at my best friend's wedding in July of 2021. Probably one of the worst maid of honors ever. Um, Thankfully, I made it through my speech. And then at the end of the night, blacked out, had to go to the hospital, which was horrible. That's when a lot of people found out that I was drinking again. And what a horrible way for people to find out that I I had really built up a lot of trust with a lot of these people again and immediately just lost all of that trust. So 2021, it had been four years since I stopped drinking. And a lot of people thought I was sober for that long, which obviously was not the case. All the guilt and shame, it prevented me from really talking to people about how bad it was or that I was drinking again at all. Yeah, it was a pretty tough way for a lot of people to realize that I still had this problem or that it had crept back in. Um, And then the shame and guilt spiral started. So that was July of 2021. I promised people after this, this happened that I was going to stop, but in my head, I wasn't ready to stop. And I really shame and, and guilt spiraled until November. So the wedding was in July when the, when you, when you went to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. First, big, first hospital visit of 2021. I hear it a lot too about the shame and guilt. And I obviously can relate to that in my own story. But that I feel like that's a big fuel. I feel like that's a big reason why we why I decided to make this podcast and why we have the entire sober motivation platform is to share stories of what's possible that people do get sober, people do overcome this stuff, and that like it's okay to talk about it because that kept me stuck. And what I'm hearing from you that kept you stuck and kept things going downward. Like it just snowballs at that point, especially once it becomes public for everybody to kind of see it. And then they thought it was a certain way. And then now it's not that way. And then we just feel like really bad about it. And it just kind of, the cycle just continues. And then it's like, Oh, it's the hamster wheel. How are we going to get off the hamster wheel? What happened leading up to you getting sober again in September. Wedding was end of July. Um, the spiral was horrible. I just felt like I let so many people down. It was embarrassing. Like you said, the shame and guilt, it's, it's, you have shame and guilt when you relapse and you're hiding it from people. There's so much shame and guilt on that part. And then trying to open up to people, I was like terrified to do that because I felt like I was letting people down. And then when I did it so publicly, it was like the worst, it was the worst way to do it. And so I actually sort of spiraled until November. November is when I got sober again in 2021. I ended up thinking it would be a good idea to go up to Napa by myself to get away for a weekend. First night I got there was the Friday. Did you plan to have a sober trip? Was this going to be a getaway sober trip? 
I I didn't plan anything <laughs> to be honest. Okay. It was it was one of those I've never I've always been like I said on paper like so put together in terms of everything like work, school, when I'm sober, managing relationships. And this, I had never felt so much shame. And so I almost knew I was at the end of the line. Like I had to stop and I I just felt like I had to get away and escape like physically. I cannot even tell you why at the very last minute, should I go to rehab or should I escape? I decided to physically escape to Napa and like just... It was horrible. So I had gotten this Airbnb. Friday night comes around. I go to the the restaurant at this place I'm staying at. It was like a resort. And so they had a restaurant there. And I just drank a ton of wine at dinner, decided to get some Grey Goose at the market. I don't know why I was already drunk. I still like tremble when I talk about this. I completely blacked out, came to consciousness by some miracle, came to consciousness. I was gushing blood from my head. I didn't know where my hair, I have a ton, I have very long hair. It was completely matted. I had hit my head somewhere, concussed myself, thrown up on the carpet. And like I said, by some miracle, I came to consciousness and called 911. The paramedics came, the police came. They were certain that someone else had been in the room with me because of how basically beaten up I looked. They thought that someone had beaten me up. I just kept telling them, like, I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die. And they got me to the hospital. I had to have staples in my head. I would say that was my rock bottom. You have done this for how long now? You've ended up in the hospital twice over the past few months, but this was the worst. Like it was, like I said, some sort of miracle. So that was November 19th and the next day, November 20th, November 20th. It was a miracle that that wasn't, that that didn't go the other direction. It's hard for me to say, you know, death. I feel like I narrowly escaped a situation that could have ended much worse than it did. I knew then that my recovery had to come first, that I had to be sober. That's a heavy story. I'm glad that it turned out the way it did for you. I really am. Likewise. That was in the Airbnb that you rented then. You were back, you made it back there and then blacked out. And then this, this happened. You, yeah. Yep. That's yep. that's so scary. What was it like in the hot? Like, do you remember that being in the hospital? Do you remember like the next day with your family come up there? Like, what was that like? So I vaguely remember getting to the hospital and I was there until the next morning. So um, they were just monitoring me because they had done like an MRI. Thankfully, it was just, you know, the gash and nothing internal. And I ended up taking an Uber back to the Airbnb in the morning and literally just laid there for hours and hours. And, you know, again, like talking about like hiding things, like my family didn't know I was in Napa. I really like, I was trying to like escape. And so I called, I FaceTimed them that night and let them know what happened. And they were 
shocked by the wedding situation because they didn't think I was drinking even more, you know, shocked and scared ended up driving back home on the next on Sunday morning. So I just basically laid in bed all Saturday, let my family know what happened, drove home Sunday, people I did let know that this happened. I think there was a lot of concern that it was going to get to this point because of, you know, the signs I had been showing from the wedding and onwards, it was getting to that really scary point. So that was the day that that's the day you got sober. It's like, consider it like the next day, the next day yeah. after that is when it started. Well, congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. That's and, and then how long does that make it now? A little over 11 months. What's changed in Michelle's life? Oh my gosh. I met Brad. (laughs) Good things Um, and bad things have happened. (laughs) (laughs) When I got sober again, I knew something had to change. I knew that I needed, I once started going to recovery Dharma meetings. I've been to tons of different kinds of meetings, AA, smart recovery. I found solace in in recovery dharma because i do consider myself um, a spiritual person and meditation and yoga has been a big part of my life always and so got a mentor um, which is like a sponsor uh, similar to a sponsor in aa and so started really focusing on that obviously reading a lot of quitlet because that's what (laughs) what i do i go to therapy weekly one-on-one so that's been incredibly helpful i think but the biggest change has been finding sober community in los angeles and so in late february i remembered that i had when i was first sober Uh, not drinking in those first couple of years, I had had this thought, like, I need to find friends in sobriety. And I had grabbed the handle at sober in Los Angeles, and just forgot about it for like, four and a half years. In late February, when I was starting to follow different sober accounts, I came across sober city movement and sober in Seattle, Alex, I posted for the first time on February 25th of this year. And did a coffee meetup. Two other women came. One of them I have been friends with now since March. And it's just grown into this like incredible thing for me. Like I never imagined that creating an Instagram would allow me to connect with people like you to connect. You know, I went to London a few months ago and met Sober in Berkshire. I've met Alex sober in Seattle, but I've also, you know, I met Laura, your sober pal, and went on this retreat in Idaho where I met multiple other people, five of whom all five of whom all live in the LA area. But our meetups for sober in Los Angeles, we do hiking, yoga, coffee meetups. We did a comedy show with the Phoenix. The real change for me has been connecting with people on Instagram and in real life and creating these like true friendships through sobriety. This community, I feel so much accountability, but also like strength in my sobriety because I've been able to open up about my recovery journey and recover out loud, as we say. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I love everything that you do in the meetups and the connection, because I think that's so important. 
in recovery because a lot of people you hear when they share their story, when they're drinking or whatever it is they're doing, it's like everybody's doing it. If you see that red car, if you get a new red car, you see a red car Honda Civic everywhere. everywhere. And it's the same thing as when you look for people who are drinking. But when you look the other way and you see people that are being sober, then it's like you start to notice all these sober people. And it really just changes yeah. things. And like you said, you build that community, you build the strength, you build the accountability, and you build a group of people who understand what you're going through yeah. just to listen. Like I find that is just very helpful for people to have people who listen and people who understand and you don't have to feel the same way because they like these people have been through it. They know what's going on and it's just so helpful. We always hear it, but the opposite of addiction is connection. And that has been just the most incredible thing for me. And being sober allows me to meet all these people to travel and remember everything. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, getting connected with people is just is everything too. And you and you're right. We hear that a lot. I just had a few questions I wanted to run through with you really quick. Yeah. I also wanted to mention too, you you you're fired up the whole interview here, which is which is great. But you really got fired up when you started talking about sober in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. I can I tell, did, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's great. I can tell that you're passionate about it and you like you, you love this, right? It gives you, it's giving I you some, it. some level of purpose. I feel like maybe you didn't have for so long. I love a hundred percent. I think it's given me purpose. It's given me an outlet. Yeah. Beautiful. Another part too on that is I feel like a lot of times we create what we think or know might've helped us early on. Mm-hmm. So if we if we lacked the community aspect and we were engaged in the isolation and we didn't have anybody around and we felt like we were on an island, which a lot of us probably did, like we were the only well, Brad, you're the only one who's struggling with this, man. Come on, figure it out. You know, that's what right. myself. Right. But and then once we kind of look around, we see that we're not. How do you cope with stress now that you're that you're sober? Yeah. So I was so stressed when I was drinking that when I stopped drinking, a lot of that stress has sort of gone away, but it doesn't mean that it's still not there. I bought a Peloton during the pandemic. So, you know, working out is definitely important for me. I find myself sort of going in waves where if I'm not working out, I can tell that I'm a little bit more stressed or feeling down. So working out is really important. Also being with my family and my dogs is a huge stress relief. Just getting outside and going hiking, also resting. I find that, you know, I still work from home full time. It can feel isolating during the week for sure. When I get stressed, like sometimes I just need to rest. Yeah, super powerful. Think that a lot of people too early on, they want to stay busy and it's probably a good thing, right? To stay like a little extra busy. But I mean, after a while, like, yeah, you have to learn to relax because you're always going, going, going. And you have like this, you know, big window of extra time. So that I love, I love that the Peloton and, and the exercise, a lot of people share that exercise is, is very helpful for this, for stress, but also for mental health and so many other things. Like you just feel good afterwards. And Yeah. What advice would you give someone struggling? What piece of advice from your own journey would you share with them? I would say if you are stuck 
and struggling, it it's probably time, right? If you are feeling so down that alcohol has become a problem in your life, I would first say it's really important to get professional support. There's obviously a ton of people on Instagram sharing their stories and it's great to like reach out and find somebody that you connect with. Obviously, AA is a great place to start if you need to get to a meeting. It can be so daunting to go to a meeting, but I think that most people will find that the rooms are really welcoming. There's smart recovery. If you are chemically dependent upon alcohol, you have to find that medical support, right? Um, yeah, true. I love that. That we have to take some sort of action, some sort of action yeah. and reach out to people. It's kind of like telling on ourselves. Like we need to tell on ourselves to say, hey, this is not going the way that I maybe visioned it or that's going to end up to be extremely positive for me. And it's not bringing any value to my life. And then once we, when we understand that, you get support. I also like the other thing you brought up earlier, what you used in your journey is books, is reading having a better understanding of what's actually going on. And a lot of these books share different perspectives that are like really great to kind of get you thinking. Exactly. So when I got sober, I didn't mention this, but when I first stopped drinking in 2017, I read Alan Carr's easy way for women to quit drinking. It was incredibly powerful. So like you said, like there's, there's so many things you could do. Yeah, it's a great umbrella. I, I know Megan put up this quote on the Sober Buddy page one time, which was actually phenomenal. It's like, you gave alcohol a thousand tries. Why not give sobriety another try? And I think that's yeah. so important there. It's like if one route or one suggestion you just don't connect with, that's okay, but don't let it end there. Like I right. think about the cycle, like we tried so many different ways to have these things included in our life. We can put forth you know, some action, some effort into trying different stuff, not just ending up and being okay with, well, one didn't work, so I'm done. You know, like give yourself, try it out. It's just like trying food when you're a kid. Like I used to hate tomatoes and now like tomatoes with a little salt and pepper on it on my cheeseburger, you know, bacon sandwich is the best thing in the entire world. It's beautiful. You got to try different things. This has been a great episode. I think there's a lot of stuff that people can, take away from here. And I appreciate you and sharing this stuff. I understand it's not easy at all to to do this sometimes, but I feel like this will unlock the doors for a few people because this story, even though it's your own unique story, there's parts of it that thousands of people are going to relate to. So big thank you. Thank you for having me on. Another great episode in the books. I hope that everybody's enjoying the podcast so far. We've had some incredible guests. Be sure to leave a rating on your favorite podcasting platform and do not forget to download the free Sober Buddy Sober Tracker app in your favorite app store. Join the Facebook group for some extra support and some community and we'll see you there. 